Welcome to Why I'm Not with Brant Pimbitic, the podcast that explores the latest trends, fads, beliefs, and addictions from all sides and tries to remind you, before you judge it, try to understand it. After that, you're on your own. This week, Why I'm Not a Politician. And now, from AfterBuzz Studios, here's your host, Brant Pinvidic. Religion and politics. Two subjects that we agreed in our contract with society that we would not bring up at the dinner table, we would not bring it up at work, we would not bring it up with family. And somehow that contract got broken because now everybody's talking politics. Everybody's opinion is so ridiculously valuable that they want to throw it out there. What used to be simple right and left politics has turned into right and wrong politics. Meaning, if you feel you're right, somebody else must be wrong. And now it's a little bit, they must be wrong, they must be bad, and they must be stopped. And that's different. If you look at your Facebook feed right now, I guarantee it is filled with political commentary. People sharing all different media uh, articles, things that they've come across, and just in general, their opinions. There has never been so much interest in politics, and yet so little understanding of how the business of politics works. And make no mistake, politics is a business. It is about dollars and cents. It is about buying things, selling influence, and getting votes. And we the people are the consumer. And right now, Washington, D.C. is celebrating big time. Democrats and Republicans are in a heyday because politics as a business is booming. And today in the studio, I've got three guests that will help me illustrate this as they are all profiting immensely off politics. First, I'm going to bring in from the right, he might even be called extreme right, a man named Ben Shapiro. He's the number one podcast for conservatives in America. He is the editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire. He was with Breitbart, so a lot of controversy there. But he speaks very clearly and eloquently, and that disarms a lot of people from his sort of conservative views and the way he presents himself. Um, fascinating guy. He's going to be in the studio talking to us. I'm really excited about that. And then from the left, I'm bringing in Dennis Kucinich, probably one of the uh, foremost liberal politicians you can think of, has been a champion of the liberal cause and been a politician all his life. Eight-term congressman and ran for president twice. Guy knows politics inside and out. And my special guest today, Jack Berkman from Berkman Associates. He is the number one lobbyist in America today. He has personally overseen over $1 billion, with a B, dollars in money that has gone to politicians in his 30-year career. That's $1 billion he's dispersed. He lobbies for the NRA. He also lobbies for Planned Parenthood. He lobbies for Big Oil, Chevron. He also lobbies for Solar and Solyndra. He lobbied for Hillary Clinton, and he lobbied for Donald Trump. Let that sink in. When Jack sits here and he explains to you what he does, you will be shocked and you don't want to miss it. This is the Why I'm Not on podcast. I'm Brant Pinvidic, and this is Why I'm Not a Politician. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Why I'm Not a Podcast. This is the podcast, the show where I try to explore the trends and the fads and the addictions and general things that people get all hyped up about, 
I try to explain why they do that. Um, before I judge, I try to understand. Now, I'm a very judgmental person, as I think everybody is. But after I did the two movies, I did two documentary films, Why I'm Not on Facebook and Why I'm Not on Pokemon Go, I realized that just because I don't understand something or agree with it does not mean that I'm right. It actually, a lot of time, means I'm actually the dumbass and I'm not the righteous one. But when I speak of righteous ones, I think of my co-host to my left, uh, host of The Tomorrow Show and on screen junkies, the one and only Roxy Strayer. Here she is, ladies. Am everyone. I that righteous? You are. You're Am always so right about righteous? things. That's what I like about you. No, I, yes. I would like to say I'm open-minded too. I'm excited to learn more, especially today about politics uh, and just how it all works. I don't know everything. Uh, yes. Okay. That sounded mildly <laughs> believable, right? And also today to help us out a little bit, my sort of right-hand man. Anybody who knows me know that if you look close enough, you'll find Garrett. He will be right beside me somewhere. He's actually my vice president of development. So he's kind of fancy in the real world, but here he sits in the corner where he kind of belongs. Garrett Greco, how are you today? I'm doing great. Oh, Thanks good for to me see up. you. And then we're going to hear from you today. Like your opinion matters here. Today? Yes. Now? And only here. Okay. And that's the way it's going to go. <laughs> Let me explain why I'm nervous about this episode. Um, mostly because I do not want to talk about politics. I do not want to talk about issues. I do not want to talk about ideological ideas that people on the right and the left feel. Not Democrats, not Republicans. I don't want to do any of that. There's enough of that out there. That's not what I do. And my opinion, I mean, it's not even that valuable. And mostly, I just don't want hate mail. And I figure if I try to stay right down the center, I'll get very little hate mail. Or I'll get no more than I normally get. How about that? Is that good? We'll see if it's good. Okay, that's my plan. So... I'm dialing back the political rhetoric for once, and I'm going to look at the business of politics and what it means and how it works and how we, we're consumers. That's what people sort of miss. We're consumers of politics and politicians are outselling us a product. And do you know what that product is? Roxy, do you know what the product is that politicians are selling us right now? I don't think so. That's right. Garrett, do you know what they're telling us? No. No. Are you ready? Here's what politicians are selling us. Politicians are selling us emotion. People love emotion. They like to feel things. And politicians have tapped in to the idea that if they can sell you emotion, that you will be in, engulfed in what's happening, which is really important for them because that's how they do what they do. They raise more money. They are able to do their re-elections. It's all part of that business. And it's fascinating to see our culture gets so swept up, more than I've ever seen. If you look at your Facebook feed right now, guaranteed there are political comments in there that are kind of shocking. And really, the whole feed is that. And that's never been like that before. And like I said, politicians in, in D.C. are super, super, super happy. Now, Roxy, your life, you're very into the pop culture world. You're like one of the cool kids. Politics still creeps into your world, does it not? Thank you so much for that compliment thank first. You, thank uh, you. <laughs> yes, of course it does. It's everywhere. Uh, even the guy hitting the buttons right now is posting on Facebook all of the time about his political views. Or I walk out of the studio and somebody's saying something. Or people are defriending me for whatever my views are, uh, either online or in real life. So it's everywhere. You cannot escape it. It's on every single TV show. Even I was watching Arrow last night and they did an entire episode on gun control, which oh. is a CW show. So it's everywhere. I mean, it is everywhere. Here we are doing a podcast about it. I mean, really? You're the one whose name is on here, Brant, and okay. you're the one who picked this topic. So I, I want to know why are we talking about okay, politics Okay, so it's story today? time. Story time. Are you ready? Take you back to my early days. Um, I am Canadian. 
So I am not an American citizen. I'm an immigrant to this country. I came here 12 years ago. But I can tell you without hesitation that when I was about eight years old, I knew I wanted to be an American. I absolutely loved what America represented at a very, very young age. So as I grew, I wanted to be in this country. I wanted to have, we didn't have pep rallies. We didn't have high school football teams. We didn't have cheerleaders. There was no varsity blue whipped cream bikini moments in my sort of high school quarterback years, right? So that bothered me. So I finally came to this country with nothing. I had a PT cruiser, a wife and two year old child and literally nothing. So 12 years later, here I am today, as happy as I can be, couldn't be happier to be in this country. But when I came to this country, George Bush was the president. And nobody really talked about politics all that much. It was just kind of, eh, eh, who cares? And I was here for my first election ever was the Barack Obama election, his first term, which was so exciting. Here he was, he was, he was young, he was dynamic, he was the first black president, and everybody was swept up his hope and change. And I was just like, God, I love Americans. Look at the way you celebrate the elections and it's a big thing and he won. And yes, there was fighting on both sides, but it felt like everybody left their stuff on the battlefield and kind of went back to work. And I felt that. And I, and I thought that was great. But now, as I sit here today and there is so much fire and brimstone that comes up in this particular election, I'm, I'm kind of stunned and shocked because I'm, I'm not used to that from Americans. I'm, I'm used to sort of an all-in approach and we're all one team. And even when we go and fight about stuff, we're, we're back on the team. And for the first time, I really feel like the split in the country is sort of like not letting go. That it's not like we're on the same team. We've really sort of split this team. And that sort of like bothers me. And my question of the day is pretty simple for you guys and for the people at home is, how is it possible that this country is governed by only a two-party system. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. If you think about it, there's Democrats and the Republicans, and that's really it. There is half the country that they have each claimed, and that's all you do. Every single issue has been claimed by either the Democrats or the Republicans. There's not 130 million people out there that split that far right or that far left. Yet, that's all we're left with. Where is the middle? Where are the people that are in the middle that go, yeah, I like some of these social liberal issues. I don't like some of these issues. I like to be conservative monetary things and I like this thing and I accept, like, there is literally nothing in the middle. Well, aren't those libertarians? They're not liber there's no such thing as libertarians. That's like a myth. That's like a, a buzzword that people use. It's not. The, the libertarians got nothing. Nothing in this election whatsoever. Gary, who ran for the head of the libertarian, that's not a real person running for a political office. That just didn't happen. So there is no middle. Roxy, aren't most of us kind of in the middle somewhere? Like. We're not all extreme, right? No, definitely not. I think that people have issues that they agree with on both sides, but they usually identify with one side or the other. I, I can't explain it. And, it, and it. and I find it, it's like, it's a little frustrating. And I think when you look at Washington, and we'll get to that when I bring in a couple of our guests. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with the lobbyist, Jack Berkman. We, we worked on a show together. And uh, he pulled the curtain back, and it was just stunning, um, the revelation that you realize when you look at how Washington works and how... Really, the two sides of the political spectrum 
they work together very well being at opposition and they like being the only opposition. So you think that they're actually satisfied with the way the system's going and that people aren't really left or right? They're just into having good business? Uh, 100%, yes. The good news is, is that Jack Berkman will be here today. Number one lobbyist in America. He's gonna tell you things that he hasn't told anybody that will literally melt your face, like Indiana Jones with the melting face from the arc. <laughs> That's what it's gonna feel like in here. Um, and Dennis Kucinich, who's really one of, the, one of the great politicians of our sort of generation, has been doing it for all his life, ran for president twice, eight term in Congress. That's a long time. Yes. And um, our first guest, I had a chance to sit down with Ben Shapiro. He has tapped into the, the divide in the country and the passion for people's political views to advance his cause. He has the number one podcast in America today on the conservative side. His Daily Wire website is a serious player in the market and he's got real strong opinions. So I was really excited to sit with him and see if he could give me some insight on the business of politics and is if, he, if he's contributing to it or just riding the wave. So let's have a look at that. All right, Ben, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having You're me. You're a very popular figure out there right now, and I thought you'd be able to give me a good perspective on this. Sure. So let me play Get to Know You game a little bit. All right. Where did you grow up? So I grew up right around here. I grew up in North Hollywood and Burbank, and yeah, I've spent my entire life basically in L.A., except for three years that I spent, spent in Boston in law school. Wow. And where did you go to law school? To Harvard. Harvard Law? Mm-hmm. Oh, and so you graduated Harvard Law? Yeah, come out in 2007. Oh. UCLA undergrad, Harvard Law for, for law UCLA school. UCLA and then Harvard? Yeah. Oh, so you're like wicked smart. I mean, I'm not a dummy. Yeah. But <laughs> That's helped you a little bit, right? It doesn't hurt. Yeah. I mean, it probably sucked to be dumb in this business. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also noticed that, like, you're like a word ballerina. Like, you are elegant and graceful. And <laughs> not, never heard that one before. All the but, things that but you sure. do. And yeah. so I think that disarms people makes it tough for them to get their points across when you are so much better at it. I mean, I hope not. I hope that they can get their points across and then I can savage them. So let me ask you, you're not your typical sort of TV pundit that goes on TV and and talks about politics and gives their opinions and brings guests in. You're your own sort of distributor of, of your own sort mm -hmm. of opinions. So at the end of the day, your whole job, your whole world is based on politics. For sure. And, and for me, telling the truth about politics, because the problem is that, like, everybody has an agenda. And so the only question is, whose agenda is, is the one that you trust? So for me, my agenda has basically been to put, it's hard for me to do this as a conservative, but put partisan politics aside to the extent that I can kind of call balls and strikes as I see it. So if somebody's lying on the right, I'll say they're lying on the right. If somebody's lying on the left, I'll say they're lying on the left, because I think the truth is more important. Would you say your business of politics is better than ever because of the political climate? Oh, 100%. I mean, there's no question that with the polarized political climate, business is, is booming. But I, I would say that we're booming to a certain extent in spite of the political climate and also because of it. So because of it, because people are really interested. So it's broadened the pie. Everybody wants to talk politics now because a reality TV star is president of the United States. But by the same token, uh, the, the audience has, has narrowed somewhat because everybody is so partisan. Everybody is so hyper-partisan right now that the question really becomes, okay, who's interested in material that has less of an agenda, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, versus just here's what's true and here's what's false. So you have two dueling narratives, and people right. are willing to buy into 
untrue things because they want to support that narrative. And that, that's, that's dangerous because we've yeah. sort of lost... It used to be that there was at least a common set of facts. Okay, we can argue about what the, what the ramifications of those facts are, but there was a common set of facts. Now it's almost as though there are two people talking to themselves in their own rooms, and they come out, and when they try to talk to each other, they now speak different languages. Right, and then it, with what you do, when you, whether you're right or wrong, mm -hmm. or you believe you're right or wrong, when you're putting out things that are obviously going to be inflammatory to one side or both sides, is that also, would you say that's good for the country, good for business, good for both? Does it so matter? My goal is not to be inflammatory. My goal is to say things that I think are flatly true. And then if they inflame people, their emotional response is on them. So some of the more controversial things that I've said, I think are pretty plainly true. So I've gotten in trouble for saying things like men are men and women are women biologically. Right. right? This, this is a very controversial proposition. Nowadays, if that creates controversy, so be it. I don't see it as a particularly controversial proposition. But, but isn't that the same thing that the, the people on the left would say, that their version of... What's right, what's wrong, what's true is absolutely true in the way sure. everybody I mean, else it, it takes looks, it is their own issue. Right. Every, everybody can believe what they want to believe. That's fine. But the problem is that in areas where certainly things are false, we should all agree that certainly things are false. Like, I, I think that, nice, and, but that doesn't seem like that's what's happening Well, once, once you've reached the, the point of, of relativism where everything is up in the air, then you're, you're going to wind up with people beating on each other. And that's, right. that's pretty much where we are. And I feel like that is all that politics has become. I is agree. Mixing up your conclusions with the facts to try to sway. I totally agree. Totally and agree. And it feels like the, the public is, is buying into this more than they've ever bought into it before. Right, because it's comfortable to buy into a conclusion that you already like. That's and, right. and social media is built around this, right? If, you, yeah. if you're on Facebook, I love Facebook. If you're on Facebook, Facebook's algorithms are designed to drive you toward more news that you like. Yes. So if you're, if you're a Breitbart reader, it's going to drive you toward Daily Caller. If you're a Huffington Post reader, it's going to drive you toward Slate. Right? That's just the way that these things work because Facebook makes its money by you clicking on things more times. If you're a Slate reader, they're not going to provide you a bunch of Breitbart links. You're not going to click on them. So the, so the entire market is driven toward pushing you into one camp or another and reinforcing the things that you already think. I've never seen this before, that there are only the two outsides right and left. And everybody is pushing as many people as they can to the far extreme as they can because... That's good for business. Well, it is, it is weird, and I think that a lot of that is built around loyalty to public figures. So I'm somebody who doesn't care about Donald Trump as a human being. He's the president of the United States. To me, that's a glorified DMV worker. Like, you work for me. I'm a citizen. You have constitutionally delegated responsibility to your damn job. I don't care whether it makes you happy or sad. I don't care about your Twitter feed. I don't care about your emotions. But during the Obama era, there was a worship that set in on the left of President Obama, and that's been mirrored on the right now by a certain worship for President Trump. And that is what I think is driving the, the chasm in politics. It's, it's do you like Trump or do you not like Trump? Just like with Obama, it was do you like Obama or do you not like Obama? You, know, you, you actually have to determine whether it's the thing that he's doing you don't like or you just don't like him. If you just right. don't like him, then you're too emotionally involved in politics. And I say this as somebody who's involved in politics full time. Let's try and determine what's good policy and what's bad policy. And I think that there should be a baseline agreement on, on some of these things. I'm not saying it's going to be 100%, but usually on most issues, there's 55 to 60% of the public that agree or disagree on something. I feel like Washington, D.C. and the culture of Washington, D.C. is like any big corporation. And they're looking at their base, the people that vote for them and donate money to them. Mm -hmm. And they're figuring out how do we entertain and keep our consumers. Mm -hmm. And they figured out 
how to sell us emotion. I, well, that's fact. That's one hundred percent true. It's one hundred percent true. And the only solution, yeah. the the only the only solution to that, I got one. is to make the business smaller. Right. This is back to my conservative point. Right. If the if the problem that we have is that Washington is big business and they're catering to the consumer of big business, which is the constituents, the citizens, right? They're passing out dollars or they're yeah. trying to make you feel emotionally good about yourself then maybe the solution to them acting like big business is for us to take them out of the realm of business entirely and make them poor, basically. Just take the money away from Washington, D.C., take the power away from Washington, D.C. Like, you don't care what happens in, in the capital of Florida, at the, at the state house in Florida, what laws they pass, because you live in California. Who cares, right? They don't impact you. We should feel the same way about Washington, D.C., except for very minimal intervention. How do you right. feel about the lobbying system in America? I mean, I think that, again, the, the cure to the lobbying system is to minimize the size of government. Once you turn it into a big business, then people are going to want to partner with the business. So yeah, everybody says get rid of the lobbyists. As long as government is a $4 trillion industry every year in terms of what we spend, there can be a lot yeah. of people seeking to get in. So you want to – you want to – a lot of want, money. Yeah, exactly. So you, you want to you get rid of lobbying? Just take away the money. So people say lobbying, and they always think of you know, some guy from ExxonMobil who's lobbying. They never think of the public sector union that's oh. lobbying for more money that's spent on, on public education infrastructure, for example, right. or on overtime for teachers. You know, the, these, if, if, you, if you want to get rid of the lobbying, devolve government to a local level, stop the national government running everything. If you have a big barrel of cash, people are going to be looking to get into it. So do you think it will ever change? Um, I think it's a gradual process. I think that it's it, – yeah, it's, it's going to take a re-education of the American public into the role of government. It's taken 100 years for us to get away from a small government to what we have now. Right. And it's going to take a long time to get back from what we have now to a small government. There's two ways it can go. Either the American people learn that big government leads to conflict and corruption and cronyism or things go boom. And, I, and what I mean is that there's enough conflict between people that things actually get violent, which we've seen an increase in, and or – the government just can't afford things anymore, and then we get like what we've had in Greece, what we've had in Spain, oh, where things where things really break down. Like what happens when Social Security is about to go bankrupt, and now the question is going to be, okay, do you radically raise taxes or do you cut people's benefits? Can't we just tax the rich? No, there's not Can't enough money. Can they just pay to, their fair share? They, yeah, exactly. There's not, no, there's not enough money for any of that stuff. I mean, you could literally take all of the wealth, all of the wealth for the 1%, and it would pay for five months of the federal budget. All of the wealth of the 1%, it would take. I don't want to do that. So, either. yeah, n nobody wants to do that because no. then there will be no jobs. I mean, no, uh, I ugly little truth. Very few people in the United States have worked a job for a poor person. Usually it's somebody rich signing you the check. I mean, that's not, a, that's not a rip on poor people, and it's not something in benefit of rich people. That's just the way the economy works. No one's there to sign you a check if they don't have the money in their bank account. How would this system move away from a two-party system? Is that something that could happen? Is, would there be some benefits to that? It would take enormous resources. I'd like to see you know, that happen because I think that very often you get elections between, as South Park puts it, douchebag and crap sandwich, and, and that's, right. that's not anybody's ideal. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard because of the way the system is structured. It would, it would take I, – honestly, I think there's a better chance that, that the parties are taken over by different competing ideologies, and that's actually what you saw in this election cycle. The Democrats started to move away from being moderate Democrats, Hillary Democrats, toward being Bernie Sanders Democrats, right. and the Republicans started to move away from traditional small government republicanism toward sort of a big government far-right European populism which is, I think, more along the lines of what Trump is doing. So that's, but neither of those sound very good, I have to be honest. No, I think they both suck, but you know, I think that the, the, you will see the parties do shift back and forth. What I would like to see is the open discord of discussion of political ideas go back to normal levels. I'd like to see people in the country sort of get along in general, whether they're from the right or the left. Mm -hmm. And I'm not convinced that in the current climate and the opportunistic 
sides of the media and the people in this world that are benefiting from the division. And I think Washington, D.C. benefits more than anybody. Mm -hmm. Companies now are probably spending more money lobbying. For sure. People are donating more than they ever have before. That it is encouraging all forms of information to come out and be more polarizing. And what I'm hearing from the people I'm talking to is, I don't know that that's going to change. I don't think that there's going to be a middle-of-the-road policy that says, or a party, a middle-of-the-road party that comes out and says, you know what, this policy we like, and we like this policy over here, and we're going to put all the, the reasonable ones okay, in so, a group right, and so go forward. Is, okay, so what you're saying now is a slightly different thing, which is that I, I think that if people looked at the facts and they said, here's a fact that, I, that, here are all the facts that we can agree on are true. We'll put those in a basket, and then we'll discuss the proper takeaways from the set of facts that we have in this basket. That would be one thing. But to pick policies off the tree, I'm not a fan of. And the reason I'm not a fan of picking policies off the tree is because you can basically convince yourself in a vacuum that any policy is good or bad. And it leads to the idea that if we just had a reasonable person in charge, then that person could pick policies off the tree and everything would be fine. And that, oh, that ends that's sort of what I was thinking, actually. And, and that usually ends really poorly oh. because, because the problem is when you give somebody the, the credibility and power without holding them accountable to any sort of centralizing idea, when you just say, pick the programs you think are going to work, pick the programs that you think are going to fail and throw those out and pick the programs you think are going to work and give that guy ultimate power to do that, then you end up in a situation where you're staking everything on the credibility of that one person. And I don't think that anything should be staked on the credibility of one human being. I so, think that, I, I, listen, I think that political conflict is not a bad thing. I think people arguing with each other is not a bad thing. I don't think passionate political conflict is a bad thing. I think what is a bad thing is when people say you're a bad person because you believe X. But why is and that what everybody seems to be doing Because it's the right simplest now. way to do politics. It's the easiest way to do politics. And as I get older, I realize this. It's much easier just for human beings to say that's a bad person, that's a good person, versus what that person is doing is bad or what that person is doing is good. That, that requires a lot more thinking because now you have to think, you know, I may disagree with Dennis Kucinich about everything under the moon, but it requires me, instead of just saying Dennis Kucinich is a nut, forget everything he has to say, now I have to think about, is what he just said true or is what he just said false? And then we can have a conversation. Then Dennis Kucinich and I can have a conversation. We can't have a conversation if, if I walk in and say, Dennis is a nut, and he walks in and says, Shapiro's a racist. And now, how do you have a conversation? There's no way. I, I feel like my comments that I get from having... Dennis Kucinich and you are going to be both of those things. That's of course, and of course. that I can't rationalize. And I think a lot of his perspectives happens. are nutty, but I don't. Yeah. But I think that. But I, and I'm sure he thinks a lot of mine are horrible. But you can determine for yourself whether what I'm saying is true or what I'm saying is false. But the easier way than actually having to do the hard work of researching and looking on Google to see whether what I'm saying is true or whether I'm saying is false and verifying, the easier way to do that is just say, here's a source I trust. I trust it 100%, and now I'm going to buy everything that source says. And we just go. And Right. It's much easier. It's a shortcut. And people like mental shortcuts. You don't want to spend all that time doing the research. And to a certain extent, that's okay, so long as you're actually vetting your sources. But at the very least, you have to vet the source. Nobody's even bothering to vet the source. Okay. So, Mr. Shapiro, here's what you're basically saying to me. Four years from now, when the election comes around again, mm -hmm. it's going to be just as contentious. There's going to be just as much name-calling. People are going to be just as excited, and it's going to dominate the news feed the exact same way it is now. I think that's right. I think that's right. Because, listen, Donald Trump is going to be up for re-election in 2020, you know, uh, barring some sort of cataclysmic occurrence. And that means Donald Trump will continue to be Donald Trump, just as polarizing as Donald Trump is. He's not changing. And the Democrats will run somebody they think is the anti-Donald Trump, and... It'll just be brutal beating each other over the head with, with sticks. I do feel like we, as the people, are being played.
by the politicians because they I think we're love playing ourselves. Us. We're playing ourselves. We're the voters. It's our yeah. fault. And it's we our, get it's so our own emotional and so riled up. For sure. And I don't think they care about the issues the same way in Washington. I think they walk around the halls just like the sheep and the coyote from back in the day. Like the, the clocking in, clocking yeah, 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 exactly. out. Hi, that's... Fred. Hi, Dave. Yeah, what I... are we doing today? And then they get on the floor. Oh, you're bad. And then they clock back out. Hey, what are we doing for dinner tonight? Uh, and like, I think that is 100% true. And I think that we're playing ourselves because yeah. it's entertainment. It's team sport now. It it's it. People, feels people, like people it. watch politics like team sport. It's not a team sport. If you're treating politics as a team sport, you're not treating it seriously, no matter how seriously you think you're treating it. Very confusing. And I don't feel a lot better after an interview, I have to say. I feel well, I mean, just as I wasn't, wasn't going to lie to you. I mean, I can tell you everything's <laughs> going to be great, and we're all on a solid Listen, footing. It was great, and I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so down. much. I appreciate it. So, Roxy, Ben Shapiro, I know you're not a big fan. Okay, I think that he actually presented himself well. Do I agree with his political opinions? No. Were there some things that he said that I feel like shine a light on how this actually all works? Yes, especially when he's talking about what happens when our presidents are celebified or whatever yes. word you want to use there. I found that interesting as well. Garrett, what did you think? I, I thought he hit it right on the nose. Oh. Yeah. Wow. All of it? No, just that specific. Uh, I was commenting specifically on Rock's Now Garrett's point. a fan. Yeah. I can't believe it. That was easy. <laughs> Good for you, Garrett. Jeez. Stand you know, your ground. I, here's the thing. He, he talked about small government, which is always the cry of conservatives, mm -hmm. which I've sort of picked up on. But I also looked and realized, like, I don't think any of you conservatives ever made the government actually smaller. It's a great talking point, but no one makes the government smaller because when you get into government, you want to make it bigger. That's how you got there in the first place. But when he said the idea of making the government where you don't care about the president, where the president is basically a glorified DMV worker, I was like, wow, that is a that is a wildly out there statement that kind of actually makes sense. I just don't know that that's realistic in our current pop culture celebrity status world. Well, I don't understand how he could think that makes sense, but what you were talking about with the picking the different issues yes. that he was saying that doesn't make sense. I guess I guess the idea is if you, if you if you if your entire political world and the people you support are based on personality and people, then it still runs into the same problems he feels that government's in your life, government's ruining everything. And so even if my sort of fantasy of some sh knight in shining armor that rides in in four years or three and a half years and says, here I am, I am the glorious champion of the middle. I will protect these things and I will do these things, but not these things. Mm -hmm. And... 200 million people go, oh, man, that's that's way more in line the way I think. Then I'm thinking that's a great thing. He did make me think a little bit like, again, then you're you're literally doing what I just did. He's the knight in shining armor. And I think that's sort of maybe not the way it's supposed to work. I don't know. This is very confusing. It's complicated for sure because I, I don't have to deny or hide the fact that I'm very liberal. That's me as a person. And listening to him and talking about the way it works he talks about how, you know, you get this information when you decide that you are conservative or you are liberal. You're only seeing things from that side. That's how Facebook shows you the stories. That's how all of the different platforms, they push you towards the direction you already are so you can become more extreme. That makes a lot of sense. Of course, once you choose a direction, you get pushed even further that way because of everything that you're getting inundated with. Like, it's, it's all coming at you. Yes. So I, that makes sense, kind of. Yeah, and... and, and I decided that we should really have the other side of the coin. Someone who really, who's on the inside. Dennis Kucinich is literally the inside, inside politics guy. He is 
widely renowned as one of the most liberal polit you know, political figures in our lifetime and has been a basically a politician all his life. Congress, he was a mayor, he ran for president. He knows this inside and out. So I wanted to see if I could get a little more insight from him. And luckily for us, he's on the line, so he's going to join us. Dennis, thank you so well, much for being here. Thank you for that introduction. I, I just uh, want to make uh, one addition. Oh, here we go. And that, uh, where it all started. I was a city councilman in Cleveland, elected at, uh, at age 23. And wow. uh, every young person watching this should know that if you're interested in politics, don't wait. Get started now. I, I began when I was 23, and that by the time I was 31, I was uh, mayor of a big city, well, the youngest big city mayor in the country. So uh, you don't have to wait. Wow. I mean, that's super impressive. You are as defined as a career politician. My question is, in everything you've seen in politics, I feel like right now is a definitive moment for the division in this country. Everybody is so emotional and fired up right now. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think for uh, since 9-11, uh, there's been an undercurrent that's been building in America uh, about the condition of our country, about our role in the world, about our ability to meet the needs of our people, about uh, whether or not we can keep um, doing these interventions around the world and ignore things here at home. And I think that um, we look to the political system for solution. Uh, the polarization started, oh, probably a little bit more than 20 years ago. And people stopped talking to each other. It, uh, and the level of, of rhetoric has changed dramatically. It's somewhat poisonous now. Is that good for politics? Does that help politicians do their job because it, it inflames emotion and it allows them to get more noticed and be part of people's lives so it helps them raise money, get elected, and make politics work? The Washington has become the capital of derogatory speech. Uh, levels of hyperbole and derogation have uh, reached greater and greater heights, almost like it's some kind of a, of a uh, demented Olympics, and people try to outdo each other with vituperation. Uh, that's spiritually degrading. It's politically uh, uh, unworkable. We have to see each other as human beings. We have to find that bit of humanity in each one of us that uh, we can connect with and communicate with. Um, and listen, that all sounds fantastic. And, and I don't know, I can't imagine anybody disagrees with that. What is actually going to be able to change over the next four years so that in the next election, we're not looking at the same division and sort of aggression that we are now? I've had 40 elections in my career, not starting, uh, counting presidential campaigns. I've won 32. I've lost eight. I've wow. stood in a number of different offices. I chose public service as a career. And during that time, I've experimented literally with, you know, with relationships in terms of how to approach things. How do you approach people with whom you seriously disagree? You call them names, apparently. That's the way it's done now. Of course. Well, you know, you I mean, I, I had this uh, experience in Congress. I, I, I addressed my Republican brothers and sisters uh, directly with what I believed in, but tried to find out not what they believed in, but who are they as people? Because we're more than the sum of our political positions. We're more than our party, our labels. Uh, there, there's something deeper, more intrinsic in what it means to be human. So the path out of this that you asked about, whether we're talking about next year, 
two years, four years from now. The path out of this is through the human heart. Now that might sound corny, but let me tell you something. It actually works when you approach people and talk to them heart to heart, instead of simply uh, looking at someone as some uh, shrunken version of a political uh, uh, exponent. Okay. I'm with you, and I agree with a lot of what you're saying. However, I think that if we were able to find sort of a baseline for this unity that you're talking about, wouldn't we have been able to do that by this point? Because there isn't seemingly not one thing that everybody agrees upon. Yeah, it seems like every single issue has been split along party lines, and there's no universally accepted issue that we all agree on. It feels like every single issue has got to be split one way or the other. Yeah, well, that's the problem. It's all about uh, partisan thinking. Uh, you know, they're, they're, we, we need to go past partisanship. I mean, listen, I, I don't know how you argue with that in theory. I guess that when, what we've been talking a lot is the business of politics itself. And one thing I was particularly interested to ask you is, if in your world, and, and you've been through, you said, 40 elections? Yeah, I, again, I'm not a theorist. I'm right. a participant. Yeah, you, you, you've been down there. With the, with the amount of lobbying and the lobbying sort of money that has to come into the political world, I mean, with that many elections, you must have had to raise millions of dollars to sort of pull through and, and run campaigns, and everybody else is doing the same thing. And it feels like the lobbyist system has a good stranglehold on a lot of the political system. Is that better than it used to be? Is it worse than it used to be? How do you see, how's that been changing? Uh, it's much worse. I, you know, I, I will tell you that because of uh, uh, several laws that have been uh, uh, upheld by the Supreme Court uh, in cases known as uh, Buckley, Buckley versus Vallejo, and more recently, Citizens United, uh, money equals free speech. Corporations have enormous ability to be able to influence elections. Politicians spend a good part of their time, and indeed members of Congress spend most of their time raising money, millions of dollars, so they can get reelected. Uh, this uh, degrades the political process. The only path out of that, for real, is uh, public financing. That'll take a constitutional amendment. It might not come soon. But what will happen, sooner or later, is that we will uh, uh, go to the people, as Bernie Sanders did during the 2016 presidential campaign, he raised the money by public subscription over the Internet. That's going to be what we need to do until we see a change in, uh, in the Constitution, which will uh, permanently restructure our, our uh, campaign finance system and stop corporations from being able to uh, buy, buy politicians. I mean, right now, our, our elections are primarily a big auction where the results uh, tend to go to uh, the highest bidders. Right. So I do feel like the recurring theme that I'm getting now is we're probably in for another few elections like this because the public is energized. Facebook has allowed people to post their opinions to a wide group of people and feel super important. And the money is pouring into D.C. And everybody seems to be going their way and... I don't, I don't hear or see a lot of action change that could change the outcome of that. It's sort of just going to, it feels like it's going to continue. You mentioned before about politics being a business. Well, it is for some people. They're in the business of making money while they're holding an office. That does happen. There's no question about it. That's not what motivated me. You know, I, my motivation has been to try to make this a better world. 
And it might sound corny to some people, but that's what I believe. I think that through our individual efforts, we actually can make a difference. And so my dedication has been to, uh, through my whole life, to be of service to humanity, to try to weigh in on situations where others would say, well, it's impossible. You can't do anything about it, Dennis. To get in the middle of things and to try to take uh, uh, things in a different and better direction. And I found that it's possible to do it. That's uh, truly inspirational. And I got to tell you, Dennis, you're a class act. And I really appreciate you joining me on my podcast here. It was very enlightening. And it's great to hear from the other side. So I want to say thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you. And make sure you send me a link so I can uh, get this around. Okay? You got it. Thank you so much. All right, you guys. Dennis yes, Kucinich, that was cool. Just such a good heart. And yeah. I love, I love things that he was talking about. Um, I don't know as much about the action steps that need to be yeah, taken. I mean, it, that is an interesting perspective where it's a lot of we should, it should, it could, we could, it might, and it'd be nice if. And again, like, I just didn't feel like, oh, here's a solution to all of the crazy level of rhetoric that's going on. Am I right. missing that? No. Well, when he talks about us being coming together as a country, he is correct that when there are those amazing moments, we do come together. But that's what they are. They're moments. They're moments, yeah. But it, does it last? No. And what he seemed to be talking about was something that was lasting. We can't even agree on human life. How are we supposed to agree on anything else? Yeah, like, it's tough. What, what is the thing that everybody's all going to sign off on and be like, yep. A very, very, very few people will agree with all of the policies that Dennis Kucinich subscribes to. That's just the way it is. Because very, very few people will subscribe to all of the policies that Mitch McConnell subscribes to, or Harry Reid, or any of the politicians. Like, what that party represents and all of their policy issues, it's hard to find someone who goes, I agree with all of them. It really becomes about what of the preponderance of sort of issues that sort of weigh you one side to the other. You have to prioritize because you could potentially agree with 10 things on the right that are huge that year, but the one right. thing on the left that you agree with is the one thing that matters to you most. So even though it's one thing, it's one thing that you care about the most. I still feel like the two parties and the organizations, and I think in this election we saw how powerful the organizations behind those parties are. They're vested in keeping the organizations as the only two organizations. If you only have one enemy, if it's you and me against each other and everybody else plays by our rules and sits on one of our teams, as long as we keep the teams relatively close, we both win. And I feel like that's what politics has done. They've, they've split the country into two teams effectively and they bounce back and forth by a very slim margin. The people who are losing, though, are people, for example, who are socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Because what do they do? I, that... I don't know. It feels like that's a big portion of the country. Like, a big portion of the country has a lot of those sort of middle-of-the-road, dare I say, reasonable values. And yet, I don't know anybody that represents that in any political circle that I've seen. And that's strange. And so I'm really excited to bring in my next guest. He flew all the way from D.C. to be here. I've known him for a couple of years. We met developing a show. And when I went and sat with Jack Berkman the first time two years ago, I spent a week in D.C. with him. And he took me behind the velvet ropes and back through the curtains and down into the pit of hell of what is politics and how it works and how the lobbying system worked. I felt like, what are we doing as, as the consumers of this, as the public? It was such 
a letdown. And I didn't think much else of it until this election cycle. And I see everybody and my friends and everybody getting so excited about everything in politics. And I think, you know, they're just doing this on purpose to us, right? Like, this is what they play. You know, that is what they do. Don't make me sad. I uh, Listen, I'm going to let him tell you for okay. himself. When we come back, Jack Berkman joins us in the studio. The average congressman raises about $4 million a year, and that's just average. Multiply that by 435 members in the House. And just on the House side, you have almost a $2 billion industry just for House member fundraising. And all of that money, every nickel of it, comes from, you guessed it, the lobbyists. All right, Jack Berkman from Berkman Associates, the number one lobbying firm in America, the man who is willing to tell it all about the lobbying system in America. Thank you for being here today, Grant, Jack. Grant, pleasure's mine. I'm really excited. Listen, I want to jump in. So if I was to ask you sort of like the one thing that the general public doesn't really know about what goes on in Washington, what, what would you have to say that is? Lobbyists run the government. The government is, it's a little less so under Trump, but lobbyists by and large run the system. They run the Congress. Under most presidents, they run the White House. They even to some degree run the courts. You know, when Congress does things, Congress doesn't even have the staff to draft the, a lot of the things it wants to draft. Do you think Congress, with those kids they have working there, 28 years old, do you think they can draft the health bill? They can't. All of that stuff is drafted by lobbyists and their lawyers and all of that. And that's what you have to know. Lobbyists run the government lock, stock, and barrel. And so if the lobbyists are writing the bill, who's giving the lobbyists the direction on what the bill is supposed to contain? The companies, their clients, the people they represent. That's what we do. The drug companies, the railroads, the docks, the hospitals, whoever the bill is about. They give us, the people who pay us, corporate America or unions, everybody who's paying. And... Is it all, is it like all of politics is basically run that way? Is there, is there like, how does a, like someone puts a bill up and then they, they champion it? Is that, is there anything that's done outside of the lobbying world like that? Oh, I mean, yeah, all Paul, everything's money driven, but it always was. You know, remember Daniel Webster, they say the system is so corrupt today. Daniel Webster was on the payroll of the railroads when he was a senator from Massachusetts, literally on the payroll for the railroads 160 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, Rome was the same way. Well, that's super exciting. Uh, okay, so let me ask you this. I read, and we've talked about before, that you have lobbied and your firm for Planned Parenthood on one side and the NRA at the same time. How on earth is that possible? That's, that's as far right and left as you can we get. We just really. do our job. We're tacticians. We don't emotionalize it. We don't bring. If we bring our own, if I can't simultaneously represent Hillary Clinton. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, I shouldn't be a lobbyist anymore because that means my emotions are starting to color the, the, the development. That's not what we do. We're cold, calculating realists. We're tacticians. We're strategists. Once you give that up, you can't do this anymore. And so does, does it bother you in any way that you're sort of manipulating this currency of favors and stuff and changing policy based on... Are you asking me if I have a conscience? I guess. Are I don't you know. It just seems are you, so... Are you raising philosophical questions, Brent? I, I don't... I, Roxy, tell me how... Like, yes, I think that's exactly that, what right? he's doing. Do you have a conscience? Uh, well, I, it doesn't bother me. No. So Hillary Clinton, who has used you as a lobbyist before, 
doesn't care about any of your personal views. She's just like, can you go get me the money? Well, can you make things happen? Can you buy me favors? They How does care in a tactical way. So let's say, let's take the NRA, which is a client. They might care because you, they feel you would be compromised if you do too much with Planned Parenthood, might interfere with the way they do a gun bill. They care, but only for tactical reasons, not for philosophical reasons, you see? See how that works? I sort of see how that works. That makes me feel super smart. Well, they, they care to what extent? Like you have lost out on lobbyist jobs because they have cared so much? Or they kind of care? Let me put it this way. If you're fighting on a gun bill and you're fighting for Planned Parenthood and some left-wing interest at the same time, they, they will worry that your position is compromised. They don't care about Planned Parenthood. They're worried that you would be compromised because you're, you owe too many favors to liberals and you won't push on theirs. There's conflict of interest. They're worried about conflict of interest. That's what they worry about. Now, they're not worried about that in our case. I'm giving you a hypothetical. What could they be worried about? See? I get it. It's so... And so if you're donating... What, like, it's a business. Remember where we started. Lobbying is a business. I got it. So if I'm, I, I'm in the Senate or I'm in the Congress, why do I need money to run my campaign? Like, why do I need you to donate money from Coca-Cola or you from the need, Enron or from the solar groups? Why do I need in, that money? If you're in the U.S. Senate today, you need to generate $10 million a year from the time you get elected. And what that means is that if you don't start raising money immediately, they will smell blood in the water. They'll say, you're weak. You will get a primary. You'll get the Tea Party after you. Democrats will line up. The way to keep people from running against you is to have money, and it's the only way. So unless you have your own money, unless you're like Brand Pivotic and you've got you know millions and millions of dollars from being star in reality TV and creating shows, unless you have that, you're in a lot of trouble, oh. and you got to raise money. And so that means that you are the savior of them as a lobbyist, metaphorically speaking. Lobbyists, you're the ones who generate the money for them? That's right. We are their saviors. They need us in order to be reelected. They need us if they want to come back. So doesn't that give you sort of a, a lot of leverage against them that may not Lobbyists be... run Washington. Lobbyists run Washington. Like somebody said, consider running for president. And I never thought of it, but you probably, I probably have more legislative experience than all the Republicans together in the primary. And that doesn't say a lot. A lot of lobbyists do. A lot of lobbyists do. It's true. So I mean, if you my, ran for president, you think you would have a fighting chance just because of the connections that you have? It's all about money. It's all about money and clicks on the Internet and TV. Look at Donald, Tr Donald Trump. Uh, two years ago, if you told me Donald Trump would have been president, I would have bet you. I'd almost bet my life savings against that. I would have bet my life savings twice over. <laughs> I think a few other people would have followed would've. you down that hole as well. But how, tell me how Washington feels right now with Donald Trump as the president strange. Trump's strategy is something not a lot of people understand. I call it preemption. And he did this in the primary, he did it in the general election. His strategy is to suck all of the media oxygen out of the room so there's nothing left for anybody else and they suffocate. Good, bad, or ugly, he wants the attention. And everybody else suffocates. It's called preemption. He's, it's all about sucking all the oxygen for himself. That's what he does. And so if you're a Democrat right now in the House or the Senate, is this an exciting time? Is this a tor terrible time? Are you, are you losing your mind, or how does that work? It's, there's opportunity for the Democrats because you have a wide-open field, so a lot of people can plunge into this. If, I'll, I'll make a prediction. Hillary Clinton will run, and if I had to bet my life, I think she will be the nominee again in 2020. Let's make what? some news. And so do you see that as an opportunity as a lobbyist to go 
raise more money, to bring in... Democrats there... in Congress don't have much say right now. In the Senate, they have more than the House, but they don't, they're not part of the game right now. It's an all-Republican game. Now, it depends if you see Trump as an independent or... You may have... You can conceptualize the system as an independent president with, uh, with uh, uh, a Republican Congress, or you may see Trump as a Republican. I'm not sure. Trump has ushered in what political scientists will call a new party system. You know, we've had five. This is really the sixth. We have a whole new party system in the U.S., new structure. So one of my theories going in was that people in the real world, us regular folks, are so excited and outraged and passionate about politics because people like you and the political class have been selling us the emotion to get us worked up because that's good for the political business. Am I crazy? Um, no, you're not crazy. I mean, a whole new, a, a lot of new people are coming into the system. I mean, voter turnout has gone down for 50 or 60 years straight. With Obama, it ticked up a little bit. Now, with Trump, it ticked up a lot. There's all kinds of new people coming into the process. It's a healthy phenomenon for the system. Trump is good for the system because vo voter turnout is up. Lots of people are voting who never voted before. People are more interested in politics than ever before. Uh, uh, cable news ratings are higher than ever before. Wow. And so I'm going to go back to lobbying for one second because my, my mind is melting here. But are you telling me that if I wanted to lobby for a bill and I gave you a million dollars, you could literally just go give it to the politicians and say, vote for Brian's Well, you have bill. to do it within the confines of the law, but sure, you can make contributions to their campaigns. You can make contributions to 501c3s that support them. You can do PACs. You can do super PACs. You can do a whole lot of things. Sure, you could. And if I am a politician and I take that money, doesn't that mean I owe, I owe you a vote or of something? Of course. That's the way the system works. What do you think? This is some kind of Athenian democracy? What do you think? We're living in a democracy, kid? That's what I, Gordon Gecko said to Bud Fox. I, I don't know. It just seems like... Yes, I did. I did think that we were living in a democracy. No, come on. Everything's bought and paid for. Look, you got a billionaire in the White House. So how does your job get affected by Donald Trump being president? It makes it a little harder because it's, he's not the traditional Republican. So we don't... Firms like ours don't have natural ties to him, right? He's a New Yorker. How would I know him? Lobbyists don't like that because he's kind of beyond the control. He didn't spend a lot of money in the presidential campaign. He doesn't need a lot of money. The Donald is a little bit independent. Now, he'll need money because he, when he runs for re-election, he'll need as much as $3 billion. He's not going to spend his own money. So the Donald, within two years, will be sucked into our system and control. But right oh. now, see how that works? Oh. But right now, he's a little outside because he didn't have to raise a lot of money. But we're working on getting our tentacles into him. Oh, and see how, how, so how does that, how do, you, how do you work to get your tentacles into him? Like, what, what's well, going to happen over His the needs for money are growing. So oh, got it. what happens is Congress is pressing him to raise money for members. He's putting them off right now. But if he wants votes on the, on the health bill, health repeal, he needs that. So he'll need money. White House is going to start to need money. Slowly lobbyists, and then his reelect in about a year, he'll think about his reelection. So the lobbyists are starting to do, you know, the claws. They're coming in. Claws. Oh, man. I mean, it's just like, there's a whole, it's like a magic show there. They're behind the curtain, you don't know what's going on back there. It's like, it's kind of crazy, right? Like, well, he started by saying that none of these people are good people, which I just wanted to touch on really quickly. Do you please? mean like wouldn't help an old lady cross the street with groceries in their free time? Or do you mean not good people once they get into the office? It's not that they're Donald Trump. 
wouldn't even see the old lady because he only sees himself. For the last, in his entire life, the only thing he sees are himself and his children. That's all he sees. There is nobody else in the world. So it's not that he would reject the idea of helping the, the old lady. He doesn't see her. His but it's world, not just the president. It's all of the politicians. Well, it's especially the president. But politicians, to get to that level of life, the only thing you're able to do is think in terms of promoting thyself. That's all you do. You can't think of anything else. What's like Kim Kardashian? What has she done? She promotes herself, right? I don't know. George that. Clooney, he promotes himself. What's George Clooney done? Yeah. You think he's a humanitarian? No. He promotes himself. But they're not politicians. We it's didn't put them in office to well, do yeah. something for That's us. That's right. But we kind of did. You kind of voted George Clooney where he is because you liked his movies. You went and paid money to the movies that paid him. His stock went up and he became George Clooney. Idealism. Because of people like you, Roxy. Idealism is not a good veneer. It's not a good prism for understanding America. It's not no. a good prism through which you understand the light of America. It isn't? No. Um, okay, tell me why there are only two parties. Jack, I, I may be crazy, but it feels like most of the people, pretty well everyone I know, and most of America is kind of somewhere in this middle, this middle majority, I call them. Yep. Yep. Kind of gets most of the issues. They may be pro-gay marriage, but they're also probably, you know, pro-school choice. Yep. Or, uh, you know, like, You're right. They like... Pepsi or Coke or hardwood floors or carpets, like they, there's issues that everybody seems to think are Democrats and Republicans, and most people can kind of see a little bit of both. They're not on the extreme, but there's only two parties. Tell me why that is. Because they write themselves into law. There are barriers to entry to other parties written into law by the two parties that control Congress. So they may, they write it into law that they run the system now. That's changing in a way because you now have something that really the Donald Trump party, like I said, he's kind of independent. Bernie Sanders kind of independent. Look what's happening in France. You've got four parties. Similar things here. Could be a big change in the system. You could. It's not inconceivable in the next four years, particularly if Trump makes a misstep. Republicans could bust and you could have three parties. That could cause the Democrats to bust. We don't know. So... The theory is that at some point, the way that sort of Trump has shaken up the system, you could have somebody step into what people have called libertarians, but they don't exist. It's more like people sort of in the middle that are well, more it's, reasonable. It's, it's unlikely that the system will change because the two parties have an iron grip because they have written themselves into law. But if Trump were to make a misstep... He could end up in his own Republican Party. Like if he gets primaried, he could say they all with, if, let's say he got primaried and lost. He could run as an independent in the general elections and say they all with the Republican Party. Uh, I don't even know if that's good or not. You know, point. you got a guy like Evan McMillan. You remember him running in Utah, a very unexciting candidate. Nonetheless, if he were a good candidate, if he had a good candidate on that constitutionalist line, uh, he could be formidable. Not him, not but him. Some, somebody better than him. And would the lobbyists sort of support that, or do we need you? Do good we, question. Do our Very good question. Need you? Lobbyists love the two-party system because it's easy. They're in power too. This system keeps the lobbyists in power. The lobbyists right now have to make a judgment on Donald Trump. We don't know if he's with us or against us. We're just finding out. We're trying to get to know him. Will it work? I don't know. So. We were trying to figure out a little bit, and I and I had Dennis Kucinich on, and I kind of asked him. I wanted to say, what do you do all day? Like, he it didn't sound like 
He's a lobbyist. Uh, he's become a lobbyist. He's out of Congress. He's become a lobbyist. But he, when you're in Congress, like, what do they do? They don't, it sounds like they don't write laws. You want to know the truth? Yes. They spend about 80% of their time raising money so they can be reelected, particularly in the Senate, but the House, too. That's all they do. But that's like 80% of your time is basically all day. That's right. And that they Eight, just... nine, ten. Ten is 100. Eighty is 80%, yeah. right. And so how do they, like, what do they do to raise money? Like, what is the... Like, you want to know the truth? They go yeah. to these little booths, something called the Republican Congressional Committee, Republican Senatorial Committee, Democratic Congressional Committee, Democratic Senatorial Committee. They sit in these little booths and make calls to people like me all day long. They say, hey, can you come to my event? Hey, can you give to this PAC? Hey, can you give to the 501c3? They do it all day. That's what they do. And then they ring bells like cattle. When it's time to vote, they ring a bell and they run to the floor like cattle when they go and... And then they vote? Yeah. And then are you telling me they go back to their little Go back booth? to their thing and, and, and uh, raise money. Yeah. And that's it? That's it. That's your system. But what are they looking to be elected for the next time? To do that again? Power. And power is the end. Power, power and, corrupts absolute. Power corrupts absolutely. You ever hear that? Yes, I did. Okay. And so that's their job. That's how they keep their job. Remember, I told you, never be idealistic about the American system. Now, what would have been like if, if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency? If she had won the presidency, what would be going on in Washington? Would everybody be... Oh, it would be far less exciting. It would be less exciting. It would be more pro forma. It would be back to the 90s. You know, everybody would know their roles. We know what the Clintons do. Trump is exciting because there's an unknown factor. There's an X factor. There's no X factor with the Clintons. You know, she just runs a... They run their standard mafia thing. And But you're saying that's no different than any other politician, effectively. No. It's all the same. Clintons are a little worse. They're a little more toxic. There's more toxicity with them because they're experienced. You know, Trump would do it, but he doesn't need any money. Trump's not going to take million-dollar bribes. He doesn't need it. Right. He doesn't care. But it, so, the, so the sort of the media and the public perception of the Clintons is a little harsher than it would be because they know them more, whereas yeah, basically I, every politician's kind of doing that. And is that they're, what you're telling me? And they're a bit more corrupt. They're like a tumor that's a little bit worse. You know, the truth is, having a billionaire as president is not a bad idea because there's no corruption. He doesn't need money. Now, they might feather their nest a little bit by growing the hotels. And, you know, the daughter's in a meeting with the Japanese prime minister. Then she goes out and does a deal with Japan. There's a little bit of crooked stuff, but, you know. Okay, let's say that all of us people band together and we get a law passed that says, no more lobbying, you guys are all out of a job. What happens to Washington then? You can't, because the First Amendment guarantees the right to petition Congress. You can't. Can't do it. Supreme Court would strike it down. Okay. What are we the people supposed to do? Yes, Jack, what are we the people supposed to do? This bend, sounds really corrupt. Bend over and take it, because <laughs> this, is, this is the way it is, you know? Bend over and take it like a man. Uh, I don't know what to say about that, but it's it's a fascinating <laughs> thing. I could do another hour on with you just alone, and we probably will have you back for this. But um, I want to say thanks for flying in for this, Brand. I would. It's absolutely fascinating. Just for you, we we do that anytime. I appreciate that, Jack. Thank you very much for being. Brand, thank you, sir. All right. Wow. That was really intense. Roxy, what did you think about Jack Berkman? I'm flipped out. I'm yeah. flipped out by the whole system and everything that he told us. No. I, I, I don't feel better. No, and I, I spent a week with him in Washington. So a lot of this sort of I've already sort of like pushed out of my brain because it hurts so badly. 
And so he brought a lot of that back up where I was like, oh, that's right. We're silly, we, us people. And don't you love how he's always smiling? Yeah. It's like, what are you smiling about? Yeah. What is there left to smile but, about? I mean, it's, again, it's like being in the media. It's like being in any real business where you're dealing with a group of consumers. You know everything that's going on and you're trying to sell them. So I, I was just, it's a fascinating world. I got to have him back and a little bit more in depth next time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, time for the sort of what I've learned and why I'm not. Um, what would you say that you learned the most on today's podcast? I learned that I still have so much to learn. That <laughs> I, I thought that I kind of had this figured out, like I think most American consumers think they know what's going on. I now know that I know nothing, and I have to keep digging. And will it will it lessen your sort of passion for political discord, knowing that the people that are pulling the strings are kind of... I don't think so happen. because I still I'm not a politician, so I'm still a good person. Yes. So I feel like you'd help the old lady. Uh, yeah, I would help the old lady. Yeah, I'd see the old lady. I still have the feels. I and see you, old lady. Even if nobody else is hearing it, yeah. I still need to feel like I'm being heard in some kind of way. All right, I get it. All How right, about so you? you ready? Here's my, why I'm not. All right. So my goal this week was to explore why people feel so emboldened about their political opinions now more than ever and why they think putting them on blast to everybody but even challenging people on theirs has become this adversarial thing. I really wanted to discover that. Um, I also set out to discover why there's only two parties and how this what I would call the majority of the middle doesn't seem to be represented anywhere. So I think what I learned is I, I like being emotional. Uh, I like getting excited. I like feeling passionate about something. And I kind of like being outraged about stuff. Like, there's a good feeling about that. And, and I've been buying into it so much. And we just have to accept that our climate is changing because we as consumers are changing. We don't want meat and potatoes anymore. We want spicy jalapeno wild sauce. Like, that's kind of the way our world is. And so we have to look in the mirror. Because at the end of the day, the way we behave and what we're driving is what's making people like Jack Berkman and the politicians play right into us. It isn't, it isn't them causing us to act a certain way. They are following the way we as the public are acting. And that's on both sides of the aisle. So my sort of advice going forward on this is to not be a sheeple. Right? A group of sheep that follows along with the two parties are sort of pushing us. I think we all need to sort of think outside the group. Focus on beliefs. Focus on actual policies. Argue policy and not people and insults. And if we talked politics, we would be better at finding that middle ground. And I urge everybody, Roxy and everybody here, to look for the middle at some point. At some point in our next political future, Somebody or something will start to call to that majority middle that's not so unreasonable. So I'll finish with this. Before you post something on Facebook or any social media of your political views in a fiery way that accuses somebody else or some other person that doesn't think like you do of not being as smart as you or as getting the facts the same way you do, I want you to think about this quote that my dad taught me early and I follow my life. When someone's being an asshole, don't trade places with them. I'm Brad Pimbitic. This is Why I'm Not. You've been listening to the Why I'm Not podcast with your host, Brant Pimbitic. For more on this episode, upcoming episodes, or more from our podcast guests, visit whyimnot.com and subscribe for exclusive content, giveaways, and all the latest happenings. 
And for more of lobbyist Jack Berkman, listen to Brandt's one-on-one revealing interview on After the Cast, available to subscribers on whyimnot.com. And for even more content, visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I shut him down, shut him down, shut him down.